Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. If your neighbor shoots his dog and kills him, that's animal cruelty. That's not acceptable. But if he brings his dog to the shelter and has someone else kill his dog, should that be acceptable? We see one dog or cat lying dead on the side of the street, and it just breaks our hearts. But how about the hundreds of dogs and cats we don't see that are dying every day in our local shelters? On Facebook, a YouTube was posted of a dog caught in the middle of a busy highway, terrified. Dozens of comments on this post demonstrating concerns as to what finally happened to this one dog. Well, how about the thousands of terrified animals in our shelters? Are we concerned about what happens to them? Of course we are. It's not just about that one animal facing death that you and I come across or hear about. It's about the approximate 1.5 million animals who are killed every year in our country's shelters. Because every single one of these animals' lives matters. Now, I should say that although 1.5 million dogs and cats are killed annually in our shelters, this is a decrease from about 2.6 million estimated in 2011. This is great progress. The number in terms of how many lives we're killing are improving, and in large part is from the 18.5% increase in national adoptions over that same time period. And this is all a direct result of efforts from individuals and rescue groups across the country, all the life-saving efforts from local and national organizations and individuals and hard work from many of our animal shelters. And most Americans out there want to see this trend continue. According to an AP poll, seven in 10 pet owners say they believe animal shelters should be allowed to euthanize animals only when they are too sick to be treated or too aggressive to be adopted. In other words, most people don't want to see shelters killing animals to control the population. But to get to that point, we Americans have to stop contributing to the pet overpopulation problem. So to not contribute to this overpopulation problem means you obtain your next pet by adopting from a shelter or a rescue group and not buying from a breeder and make sure you fix your animal. It's so easy. And tell your neighbor or your friend or your relative to do the same. According to the 2017-2018 National Pet Owner Survey conducted by the American Pet Products Association, 68% of U.S. households, or about 85 million families, own a pet. The APPA reports that 34% of dogs are purchased from breeders, while 23% of dogs and 31% of cats are obtained from an animal shelter or a humane society. Think about this for a minute, and let's look at the dogs. Only 23% of dogs were adopted, and 34% of dogs were purchased from breeders. Does that surprise you? It surprises me that more people are getting their dogs from a breeder than rescuing from a shelter. Why? Rich Avanzino, the first president of Maddie's Fund, which is a fund endowed with more than $300 million and the money is spent to help save the lives of dogs and cats, and Avanzino is considered the father of the no-kill movement. Well, I met Rich for the first time in 2011 when he was describing this concept of a no-kill nation, meaning the point where we are no longer killing these adoptable animals. At that time, Rich strongly believed we will become a no-kill nation by the end of 2015. 
He gave me some mathematical calculation to support his argument, which I found interesting, but for me, didn't seem very realistic. So three and a half years go by, and his target date of being a no-kill nation was a year and a half away. I thought I'd reach out to Rich for an update. So when we spoke, I expected Rich to tell me that he recalculated the numbers, and his no-kill target date would be pushed out at least a few more years. But he didn't. In fact, Rich strongly contended that we would become a no-kill nation by the end of 2015. And he points to the fact that animal guardians are paying more than ever for dog and cat food and vet care and pet products as evidence of our increased commitment and dedication to animal welfare. Now, I think Rich is a wonderful man and I respect and admire him greatly, but I have to say I was not persuaded and did not share his optimism. So fast forward to 2018 and years beyond his no-kill target date, and we're still quite a ways from achieving that no-kill goal. And it's really disappointing that despite all the hard work from these groups and shelters and individuals, healthy, adoptable dogs and cats are still being killed due to overpopulation. And in order to reach our goal of a no-kill nation, we need less people buying dogs and cats and more people adopting from shelters and rescues. And here's another unbelievable fact. Many of the dogs in our shelters were purposely bred. That is to say that many dogs in shelters were originally created by breeders and puppy mills. So at a time when we're killing about 1.5 million lives every year, we have these animals being brought into the world, many of which end up in the shelter at some point in their lives. Even though some of the worst puppy mills discovered are being shut down, the fact remains that approximately 10,000 of them are still operated in the U.S. And generally, these are inhumane, overcrowded, dirty facilities that produce sick and diseased animals that largely end up in pet stores or are sold online and to individual sellers. Now, fortunately, the general public is starting to learn not to buy animals from pet stores or online, but we need to continue educating people about the truth about puppy mills. Now, with respect to private breeders, they claim they love dogs. But we all know that they're in business to sell dogs for high prices and make a profit. So I would contend that the reason that most breeders claim they love dogs is because they're profiting from the sale of their product. And if they truly love dogs in the normal sense of the word, they would not be creating more of them many of which end up in the shelters at some point in the animal's life and burdening the system. Instead, they'd be working with shelters and with rescue groups to save dogs. What nonsense for a breeder to claim they love animals or talk about the tragedy of the millions of dogs and cats that we kill in our country every year when they are largely contributing to the problem. What hypocrisy. A few years ago, I had a patient say to me, Dr. Kirshner, I hear you love dogs. Well, we have a lot in common. I love dogs, too. I've been breeding dogs for the past 10 years. How do I respond to such ignorance? She was so excited to tell me about her love for dogs and how she thinks she's demonstrating that love by the number of dogs she's brought into this world over the past 10 years. And thus, her and I must have so much in common. What do you say? Oh, how wonderful of you for creating and profiting from all these dogs for so many years essentially killing the shelter's animal's chance to have a life? I think we as a society are much too easy on the breeders, who themselves accept no responsibility of having anything to do with the pet overpopulation problem. And it baffles me 
that some of the national animal welfare organizations refuse to criticize breeders. And many of them work indirectly with the breeders. I know they don't want to alienate any of their potential supporters, but when you have these groups on one hand send a message out to adopt and don't buy and the problem of pet overpopulation, and then on the other hand have breeders as their collaborators, it just doesn't make much sense to me. Oh, it's okay because they're responsible or ethical breeders. What does that mean? What's a responsible breeder? That's an oxymoron. Because they love the animals they create and make sure those animals get into loving homes makes them responsible? They're still creating lives which are costing the lives of other animals. So these animal welfare organizations say, okay, it's very important for you to fix your pet. Don't allow them to procreate. But it's okay for so-called responsible breeders to allow their animals to have litters? We should all demand that every animal organization we know of that works with breeders get real and take a stand against all breeding. Because there's no justification, none, for breeding more animals when we're still killing so many. And it's not just the breeders. Anyone who buys from a breeder is contributing to the problem. And if we want to get to Avanzino's no-kill nation, we need to continue to encourage people not to purchase their animal, whatever their reason is. They want a specific personality. They know exactly what they're getting when they buy from a breeder. They want a hypoallergenic dog. They want a purebred. We all know how to respond to these misconceptions about why buying from a breeder is necessary or preferable. And by simply explaining that this very animal that they're looking for can be obtained through this rescue or this foster or obtained by assistance from shelter personnel and making sure they understand about pet overpopulation and what's happening to millions of animals in our country's shelters, we can alter their behavior because many don't know and many don't know the consequences of them supporting the breeding industry even by purchasing just one animal. Because remember, every dog or cat the breeding industry or a person brings into the world means one home fewer for a dog or cat desperately waiting in a shelter or getting by on the streets. And once you explain this to them, and once they understand what's happening to all these beautiful animals who want to live and want to be loved and want to be a part of a loving family, but instead are being killed simply because they don't have a safe place to call home. Once these people are educated and learn the facts, experience tells us most will opt for saving a life. Because really, what greater pleasure is there than knowing your actions saved a life? And that one life matters. Now, today, which is the third Saturday in August, happens to be International Homeless Animals Day. International Society for Animal Rights, or ISAR, conceived and began International Homeless Animals Day in 1992. Since that time, ISAR's International Homeless Animals Day observances have consistently grown in number. They bring people all over the world together to shed light on pet overpopulation and the spay-neuter solution. International Homeless Animal Day events have been celebrated in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, in over 50 countries and on six continents, saving millions of animals' lives. Animal protection organizations and concerned individuals from around the world come together on this day each year to raise awareness about the pet overpopulation epidemic. Listen, 
Go to ISAR's website, isaronline.org, isaronline.org, and find an event near you. Go there and share your support. If you're unable to participate in person, why not take this opportunity right now to decide what you will do to help homeless animals in the upcoming year? I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. This is Animals Today. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Welcome back to Animals Today. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. You can listen to all the previous shows there. You know, what comes to mind when you hear about landmines? Well, more and more often, the answer is rats. That's true. And today, uh, Charlie Richter, who is U.S. Director of Apopo, is with us, and he's going to explain what I'm talking about. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Charlie, uh, your organization is utilizing these cute rats in a number of ways. Explain to us uh, what you're up to. So Apopo is an organization um, whose mission is to train African giant rats humanely to detect lies. And I say humanely because um, animal welfare is at the top of our priorities. We always make sure that the rats are never put in harm's way um, during their detection tasks. But rats, essentially, um, as many of your rodent lover, loving fans might know, have a really highly advanced sense of smell and are very, very trainable. Um, and, of course, are much cheaper to train and maintain than a scent detection dog. So knowing that um, there's a lot of detection tasks, particularly in, in the developing world, our, our founder, who is a rat lover himself, came up with the idea that uh, rats could be a very cost-effective detection solution for the global landmine problem at first, yeah. which traditional methods of detecting landmines are very slow and expensive. And through a tedious uh, period of research, he eventually proved that they were a very good solution. And um, they've been rolled out now in Mozambique, Angola, and Cambodia. And um, we're hoping that they'll be in Colombia and Zimbabwe later in this year or next. We also actually train them to detect tuberculosis, which in traditional labs in sub-Saharan Africa and, and some South Asian countries that really don't have a lot of health care budgets, they, they use uh, traditional microscopy, which is a 100-year-old tool, which is highly inaccurate, but really the only cost-effective and affordable way for them to do it. Um, but our rats are, are an improved method um, over that, and we've rolled it out in Tanzania and Mozambique. They're... they're they're more sensitive than traditional microscopes. And so those are the first two mm -hmm. applications we've come up with, but both essentially take advantage of the fact that rats are highly intelligent, highly trainable, easy to feed and maintain, and then have this uh, amazing sense of smell yeah. that is just as good, if not more so, um, than a dog. That's fascinating. Let's go a little bit into the landmine situation then uh, finish up with the tuberculosis uh, story. Uh, how big a problem is hidden landmines? It's tough to really say because, of course, the the real travesty about landmines being left during a, a period of conflict is you often don't know where they are and don't know how many are out there. Um, there is 73 countries right now that have landmines that, that are in the ground, um, at least that are confirmed. 
And in just Cambodia alone, there's six million landmines um, affecting uh, tens of millions of people. Most likely around the world, there's easily hundreds of millions of people that are affected by the threat wow, of landmines. That's incredible. And probably that many mines. But of course, the real problem with landmines isn't necessarily the volume of the mines, but it's how if there's one landmine in a in, in a neighboring community and the whole community doesn't know where it is and it's uh, blocking access to a water well or to um, a road, it can really hamper that economic development yeah. until it's found and cleared. Landmines have both their direct impact on humanity, but also the, the indirect impact in that it, it blocks progress and leaves people in a state of fear. Yeah. So, The rats work incredibly quickly compared to the traditional methods I saw. And can you just describe for the listeners how you actually deploy them and how they do their thing? Sure. So rats are trained through operant conditioning, much how you would train a dog to sit using uh, dog biscuits or a treat. It's a bit more complex, but over time, they eventually are taught to use a naturally occurring indication behavior, which for a rat is either scratching on the ground or pausing, um, and are taught to do that when they when they sense the smell of TNT, which is the main reason they're so much faster than humans with metal detectors, because they're only smelling TNT while humans with metal detectors are picking up every single false scrap of metal, which on a battlefield um, or an area where an army uh, passed through, as you can imagine, there's often a lot of metal. And even in, in tropical areas, often there's just metallic soil. So rats really can get down to what is needed to be inspected further while metal detectors yeah. have constant false positives. The training process itself starts uh, at about nine weeks and the rats are socialized to work with humans and taught that a click sound essentially means food. And then after they've essentially associated the click crash sound with food, they are, uh, they're introduced to the smell of TNT and tea eggs and they will put that in a, in a sandbox and the trainers will eventually only click when the rats are right over the TNT egg and sniffing it. And if you know rats, they just kind of run around sniffing, 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 sniffing. So once they have taught them that the smell of TNT and click means food, they then teach them to do the indicating behavior. And uh, after that, the rats have to um, essentially perform perfectly yes. on blind tests where neither the trainer or the rat knows where a deactivated landmine is, but with TNT. And we have the largest deactivated landmine field in the world wow. at our training center in Tanzania. And once they've gone through all of those processes and proven to be 100% accurate, because, of course, you can't have mistakes with landmines, they can be deployed to other countries. And even when they are deployed, they still have to, uh, every week or so, prove themselves 100% accurate on uh, modified test fields where we bury deactivated landmines and still the presence of TNT. So it's a highly quality-controlled process, but it's taking advantage of the rats natural ability to smell and the natural ability to indicate and the fact that they literally work for peanuts as we like to say okay they work cheap but do you think these rats have a happy existence is this a good life for a rat so our founder as i, I said he's a, a rat a rodent lover through and through he uh he, he bred, bred and trained rats all growing up um he still has all sorts of rodents if you go out to where he lives now at antwerp belgium uh, running around his yard and we like to boost that they're probably the most spoiled rodents in the world. You know, they're really well fed. They're checked by veterinarians. One thing that I should have let off with, uh, the rats are way too light to set off landmines. Oh, yeah. So they're really at no danger running over a landmine field. 
They also uh, are, there's never been a case of a rat getting tuberculosis, but even when we're doing a tuberculosis detection program, which I haven't gone into, you know, we, um, we, we uh, did disinfect all of the samples so that there's absolutely no risk that they get the disease. So they also have plenty of time to play. I mean, the rats only work for a couple hours a day, and the rest of the time they're playing with each other. We have specially designed, um, you know, living quarters that are made to mimic their natural surroundings. We do treat them like heroes, and, and we take that very seriously. I think they have a very nice life, and they, they work about seven years, which, as I said, it's not the longest work day anyway, and then we usually retire them at seven years, but sometimes rats, particularly in these quality control tests, will start showing a little bit of decline, and when that happens, we just retire them, and they live the exact same life as the detection rats in our kennels um, around the world, so... They, they have a very, very, very good life. Sounds pretty good. Uh, that's Charlie Richter, U.S. Director of Apopo. Charlie, I'd like to have you uh, come back a little bit later for a, another segment so you can just tell us a little bit more about uh, tuberculosis. We didn't have time to do that in this segment, but I really uh, appreciate you uh, coming on. And what's the website? APOPO.org, Apopo.org. Thanks, Charlie Richter, from, uh, U.S. Director of Apopo. Thank you. On August 19th, we recognize International Orangutan Day. Did you know these intelligent and gentle primates are under great threat of extinction primarily due to loss of habitat? Fortunately, there are things you can do at home to help prevent and save these wonderful animals. Peter, let's see how much you know about orangutans. Orangutans are the largest tree-dwelling animals on Earth. True or false? That is true. That is true. Orangutans are red-haired apes that live where? A, in the tropical rainforests of Sumatra and Borneo in Southeast Asia. B, live only in Nigeria, in Africa. And C, live throughout Africa. Oh, that's A, I'm sure. That's true. Orangutans live only on those two islands, Sumatra and Borneo. Orangutans are the only great apes of Asia. And it appears that they are of African origin, but dispersed about 50 million years ago. The average height of an adult male is about 55 inches tall, and they can weigh up to 200 or so pounds. Orangutans have an enormous arm span. A male orangutan has an arm span of about 2 meters, which is 6.6 feet, and can even be up to 8 feet from fingertip to fingertip in the case of a very large male. Orangutans are among the most sexually dimorphic of the primates, and an adult male may be three times heavier than an adult female. Speaking about the males, here's a question for you, Peter. Once a male develops these, he won't tolerate any other adult males in his vicinity and competes with them for access to receptive females. What are these? They're bright orange color coats, a functional opposable thumb and an opposable big toe, or cheek pads? Well, let's. I, I don't know, but I thought the juveniles are orange, and I know their thumbs are not going to become a... Po- I'm going to have to say the cheek pads. I don't know why. Cheek pads are correct. Sexually mature males develop cheek pads, which frame their faces and make their heads look larger. And in the wild, some males won't develop these cheek pads until they're about 30 years of age. 
all orangutans do have hands that are very much like ours. They have four long fingers plus an opposable thumb. Their feet have four long toes plus an opposable toe. Right. That's really interesting. Isn't, isn't that? Yeah. Cheek pads are also thought to help extend the range of their vocalizations. And speaking of their vocalizations, orangutans are noisy animals. Orangutans make loud howls and bellows that can be heard from miles in the rainforest. It's usually the males that make these calls, usually to warn other males in their territory and to attract females. And researchers have identified at least 32 orangutan vocalizations. Peter, the word orangutan comes from the Malay words orang hutan, meaning a... Mm. Oh, I think I know. Okay. Something, something like animal, something of the forest, animal. Very good. Very good. Person of the forest. Orang meaning people and hutan meaning forest. Yeah. The orangutan is one of humankind's closest relatives. In fact, we share nearly 97% of the same DNA. Orangutans spend most of their time up in the trees. As you know, they have these hook-shaped hands and long, strong arms and are easily able to climb and swing from branch to branch. Yet, although these guys are strong and very powerful, everything I read says they are gentle, gentle creatures. I mean, they might just sit for hours gazing. And they are intelligent. They make their homes in the trees. They build tree nests each night out of leaves and branches and sleep in these leafy nests high off the ground, which protects them from their predators, which are the tigers and the leopards. Although we know the tigers are rare in the wild since humans have killed them off or most of them off. And you can see in videos and photos that these orangutans also use leafy branches to shelter themselves from rain and sun. And they make umbrellas for themselves out of big leaves. That's cute. So they are indeed smart. They are born with the ability to think and reason. And with their red-orange coat color, they are nicely camouflaged in the rainforest. So here you go, Peter, regarding the family dynamics, the following statement is true. A, there's a very strong relationship or bond between mother and her young, but the male orangutans tend to be alone. B, mother encourages her newborn to fend for him or herself. Or C, the male orangutan is the guardian of the babies. Okay, I happen to know this one uh, because I was reading, I read, and uh, it's A because the male does, is out of there. Exactly right. Mothers carry their offspring for the first five years and actually stay closely alongside their young till about six or seven years, during which they've learned the necessary skills to survive on their own. Baby orangutans rely on mama's nurturing for everything. They're always, you see them clutching tightly onto their hair of the mother's stomach area. Yes, they're very cute. Yes, but interestingly, as you said, unlike other great apes, like the gorillas and the chimpanzees, the male orangutans don't like to live in groups and tend to be alone. So females give birth about once every eight years. And like you said, newborns are very cute with their pink faces that actually change color as they age a little bit, get a little darker. Orangutans eat mostly fruit. Their favorites are huge spiky fruits called durian, but there are actually a few hundred different kinds of fruits they can find in the rainforest. They also eat some flowers, honey, bark, leaves, and insects. The lifespan of orangutans in the wild is what? Uh, I know that one too, 30, uh, 30 to 40 yeah, years. Yes, 30 yes. to 40 years. Yeah. Orangutans are indeed endangered. 
Peter, an ingredient found in many everyday foods and cosmetic products, is contributing to the rapid deforestation of their habitats. What is this ingredient? Oh, that is palm oil, and I'm going to be speaking about that in a moment. That's right. And according to the Sumatran Orangutan Society, orangutan habitat in Sumatra and Borneo is being cleared at an alarming rate for conversion to oil palm plantations. On Sumatra, there's now more than four times as much land cultivated with oil palms as there is orangutan habitat remaining. Lori, I wanted to add a little bit more about the connection between the palm oil cultivation and use and the bad situation orangutans are around the world. Their habitat is being destroyed. Palm oil, first of all, is used in uh, many products, some foods and some household products. The use of palm oil has become more and more prevalent in many foods, including instant noodles and margarine and many prepared breads. And uh, it's just not a healthy fat, so you want to avoid eating it. As you mentioned, the source of it is the oil palm tree. This originated in Africa, but now is all over Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and Indonesia um, especially. And the cultivation of palm oil is really terrible for the rainforest. They are basically cleared, and the palm oil tree fields are planted, and uh, this results in the destruction of the orangutan habitat. About 1,000 to 5,000 orangutans are killed every year because of palm oil development. And they have indeed lost about 90% of their primary rainforest habitat. Wow, I didn't realize it was so high, 90%. Yeah. Furthermore, palm oil cultivation is bad for the environment. It messes up the water table. It decreases biodiversity, obviously, and contributes to climate change through a variety of uh, mechanisms. Now, a little bit more about the products. If you go into your typical grocery store, about half of the food products and household products sold in North America have palm oil in them. And it's very sneaky because it can be listed in the ingredients under a large variety of names, some of which don't seem to be equivalent to palm oil. So you need to do a little reading about this. And really what you need to do is just avoid purchasing or using any of the products and foods that have palm oil. It's very prevalent in lipstick and shampoos and washing detergents, and uh, it's just hiding everywhere. It's become so common. Truly, it's putting so much pressure on the wild orangutan populations. Going even further than that, the whole industry is bad for the local communities. It doesn't supply good, sustainable economics for the locals. There is one more thing I want to add this sort of controversial area about whether palm oil can be grown sustainably. There is a certifying organization called RSPO, which is supposed to verify that your palm oil has been obtained sustainably, but most sources I found are highly suspicious about this and uh, recommend just avoiding its use altogether, which is what we try to do. But, you know, going through this, Lori, I've become much more aware. We've been avoiding palm oil, but I think it's hiding in more of our products than we were aware. And we should look at this a little bit further, don't you think? Absolutely. And Peter, you probably want to know how we got to this point. So next week, I'm going to explain the story. And it has to do with the decreased use of unhealthy trans fats in packaged foods and in restaurant foods. And its replacement with the nearly as unhealthful ingredient, palm oil. So next week, you'll learn how and why this happened. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and this Animals Today Minute is about dog bites and how to avoid and prevent them. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million dog bites on people occur yearly. That means about 1 in 72 people get bitten each year by dogs. Now, we all love our dogs, but it's smart to know some of the facts about bites. National Dog Bite Prevention Week takes place during the second full week of April each year and focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. According to the AVMA, most if not all bites can be prevented. By far, children are the most common victims of dog bites, followed by the elderly and, yes, postal carriers. We all know that the medical consequences of bites can be serious, like causing infections, causing severe pain, requiring surgery, causing disfigurement, and so on. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 for injuries caused by dog bites. And dog bites often result in homeowners' insurance claims. According to the data of the Insurance Information Institute, there were more than 18,000 dog bite insurance claims in 2017, with the average cost paid out per claim being about $37,000. When dogs bite, it is usually in response to something like the dog being stressed, scared, startled, or threatened. So the situations need to be managed by us people. And dog owners should properly socialize their pets. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And duh, we should keep our dogs on leashes when they're out. And choose the right dog for your family. And of course, make sure they're fixed. Do appropriate obedience training and keep them well exercised. Remember, a tired dog is a happy dog. A few especially risky situations have been identified, including when the dog is not with its owner, when the dog is with its owner, but the owner has not given permission to pet the dog, injured or sick dogs, dogs that are sleeping or eating, and growling and barking dogs. There are other common sense things to do to avoid bites, like avoiding placing one's hand through a fence where a dog is on the other side, and allowing dogs who want to be left alone their space. It bears repeating that far and away, most people who are bitten by dogs are children. So parents and dog guardians keep that in mind when they're near each other. Everyone agrees, even though dogs are man's best friend, there are too many people getting bitten by dogs. Do your part to make avoidable dog bites a rare occurrence. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back. Okay, uh, two recent medical cases that have got everyone really anxious and uh, worried. A 58-year-old woman died recently after a dog, after her dog nipped her hand, and a 48-year-old guy also in Wisconsin, he had to have both his arms and legs amputated when he developed the same condition. This is caused by a recently discovered bacterium that lives in the saliva of healthy dogs and cats and very rarely gets transmitted to people, even more rarely can cause this horrible fulminant infection. 
It's called capnocytophagia canamorsis. So Peter, is this bacteria that resides in the normal flora in our dog's mouth? Yeah, in fact, 24% of dogs harbor this bacteria. And are these two individuals affected? Were they immunosuppressed in any way? They were not immunosuppressed. Uh, they were both reported to be healthy, but immunosuppression is a risk factor for getting this severe illness, such as um, having your spleen removed or being on chronic steroids or being alcoholic. Those have been identified as risk factors, but many people have no identifiable risk factors. They're just unlucky. And they're thought perhaps to have received a large inoculation of the bacterium from the bite or even the lick. And sometimes no more than casual contact with an animal is reported. So it's still very mysterious. This is a newly described organism. And in these two cases, were the dogs sick at the time of transmission? No, no the dogs and the cats are never sick. They wow. just have this bacterium that lives happily there. So this bacterium, it's a uh, slow-growing gram-negative rod for you microbiologists out there. Treatment with antibiotics is effective like penicillin or third-generation cephalosporins, but you have to recognize it early. So how rare is this? I mean, in the history of owning dogs, this is the first two cases I've ever heard of where one woman dies and the other man gets all his limbs amputated. That's right. It is pretty rare. Maybe a, a dozen or two cases in the past five or 10 years have been reported, something like that. And really the bacterium was only identified a couple of decades ago. So whether it's new or just newly recognized is uh, hard to know. Well, we allow kisses and licks from our dogs all the time. I know. It does make you wonder what's okay and what's not. It does make sense, it seems, that if you are bitten or nipped, that you should wash your wound out right away and then just monitor it. And deep bites probably should be treated with antibiotics or at least watched very carefully. The symptoms can appear within one to eight days after exposure, and the symptoms range from mild flu-like symptoms to full-blown fulminant septicemia. There may be fever, vomiting, diarrhea, malaise, abdominal pain, muscle aches, confusion, dyspnea, headaches, and skin rashes. More severe cases may include endocarditis, DIC, and meningitis. So it's capnocytophagia canamorsis. Hopefully this is not the start of an epidemic, Lori. Okay. It can't be. I hope not. There's no way. Okay. Well, everyone's talking about that guy who was caught on video uh, taunting that bison at Yellowstone National Park. Did you see the video, Lori? Yes. So he is uh, clearly an idiot. Perhaps he's uh, drunk. And for those of you who haven't seen it, in the middle of the road, you've got this uh, bison who's uh, acclimated to the cars. They're just uh, rolling by very slowly in two directions. And he's on the road uh, in very close proximity to this huge animal. And he's bothering it. He runs in front of it. He gets him to chase him a little bit. Not in his car. No, he's, he's in just, person. Right, exactly. Right. right. Exactly. I just wanted to clarify that. Well, it turns out that this guy is causing trouble at other national parks. At Grand Teton National Park, he was arrested recently for drunken disorderly conduct, and he's also been involved in some other disturbances. He pled not guilty. It is illegal to harass wildlife in any national park, and it certainly looks like he was harassing this bison. So after taunting the bison, did the bison hurt him in any way? No. Oh, too bad. No. The superintendent of Yellowstone he called Renke's confrontation with the bison dangerous, reckless, and illegal. And he thanked the park rangers for arresting the guy. So I wonder what consequences he's going to face. Are they going to fine him like $500 and let him go? Oh. You like jail time, don't you? You like the death penalty. I would rather the bison. Oh, bison revenge. I like bison revenge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. You mess with the bull, you get the horns. Wow. I attended the 2018 Super Zoo convention in Vegas this summer, and Lori and I are going to be reporting on some of the products I discovered while I was there. 
case you don't know, SuperZoo is a huge pet products and pet lifestyle convention. Uh, it occurs yearly, and uh, it takes place at the Mandalay Convention Center in Vegas. It fills the convention center. It is massive, almost too much to take in. And it really covers all of the aspects of uh, pets from dogs and cats. They have aquatic. They've got reptiles. They've got a lot of grooming things. They've got contests and a lot of fun novelty stuff. It's really uh, a little adventure to go there and see what's hot. Anyway, this is the second year I have attended as a member of the press, and it's just uh, fun to strike up conversations with uh, people who've got uh, interesting products or interesting uh, displays. But it's for the industry, so it's not really open to the public. Right. And uh, a lot of selling and buying is, is done. People need to stock up their stores for the upcoming season, and this is where you get those neat products that no one else has. So that's fun to see. Now, I do want to report one one really interesting trend that is sweeping the show, and that is the use of CDB, right, derived from hemp or marijuana in all sorts of dog and cat treats or as tinctures or supplements. And these are uh, promoted for a variety of uh, health and wellness effects. They're everywhere. Peter, tell everyone about the picture of the colorful dogs you sent me. Yeah, this is a little weird and disappointing. Uh, I spotted two companion dogs on leashes being walked around the floor, I think by attendees, and each one had their fur dyed in multiple colors and patterns. And their fingernails painted. Yes, that's a popular thing now too. And one of the dogs had, I didn't get too close, but it looked as if this dog had rhinestones glued or applied to her forehead and her snout. That's horrible. Just in a row. I'm like, oh, who? That's... I know. Who doesn't? The I same know. type of people that would tattoo their dogs, right? That's really... Anyway, these dogs attracted a lot of attention, but I can't say I approve. Anyway, we have been corresponding with many of the vendors and manufacturers, and we have been uh, testing out and trying uh, many products in our home laboratory, right? We used to have a home, now it's a laboratory, and we've got a bunch of test subjects who are trying out our uh, products, our samples, our toys, and uh, they are filling out their scorecards and reporting their opinions to us. And we're going to share that with you. So Lori and I will be looking forward to sharing with you some of these uh, products in some upcoming shows. Peter, I want to tell you one of my favorite treats for cats, and that is the Delectables Squeeze-Up Treats. Delectable Squeeze-Up Treats are available in chicken and tuna flavor, and they are a rich, thick puree in a plastic tube, and you can feed your cats by hand or directly into a bowl or as a food topper. Delectable Squeeze-Up is intended for intermittent and supplementary feeding only. And I have to tell you, one of our cats takes a daily medicine. Prozac. Right. Prozac, a liquid form (laughs) Prozac. Exact amount has to be given every day. And we've tried various vehicles to give this cat the medicine. Right. And they failed. Including directly into the mouth. Exactly. Well, then that didn't work out. Blood is drawn from both of our arms. Yes. And we tried the medicine in his favorite foods like cod and other fresh fish. And he would smell it and turn away and wouldn't eat it. So we squirt the measured amount onto the squeeze up, which is in a little bowl, and mix it in there. And the cat just eats it right up. So we've found it's good for that use. But besides that, all the cats just love it. Oh, they love it. Okay. 
Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.